believe that your personal life and your professional life are inherently linked. And when you do the work on both sides, you can become the most successful version of yourself. This is a place where wisdom meets leadership, where success meets spirituality. Welcome to Do the Work with Denise Love Hewitt. I am excited and honored to be sitting here today with Griffin Matthews. He's an incredible writer, singer, producer, and actor. You may have seen him on Dear White People or Ballers. We've actually only met once in person, but when I did, we, I got to see his incredible musical, Invisible Thread. Since then, we've become social media friends, and what was crazy from that one meeting was that I believed in him immediately, and I knew he was someone that I wanted to support. I also remember watching his show and thinking, God, he was pushing this to Broadway almost 10 years ago. That must have been really hard. I know how hard it was to get my company in Hollywood like sort of on on consciousness, and Broadway is far worse than Hollywood. And so I could sense the pain of that process and immediately sort of identified with Griffin and his journey. And then a few months ago, Griffin was wildly brave, and he told his truth uh, about that journey on Instagram Live, um, which caused a great amount of like ripple effects in the business and some really, I think, interesting conversations, and I hope action that is like pushing us towards real shift. So thank you for being here. I'm so excited to join you. This is this is my favorite time because now we really have time to talk and listen. Nothing else is happening. So and, talking and listening. And let's also put in, let's have people creating actual tangible action. That's right. Talk, listen, and do something. Yes. Love so it. before we dig in, can you just tell the audience uh, about Invisible Thread, the story of it from your from your mouth? Yes. So I wrote a piece along with my husband, Matt Gould, that detailed the journey of a young 23-year-old naive New Yorker named Griffin flying off to Uganda to volunteer for a summer. And the story is a documentary style musical that was initially called Witness Uganda and then was the name was moved to Invisible Thread. And now it's back to Witness Uganda. I'll say more about that later. But but Witness Uganda really detailed my journey being 23 and an artist and gay and closeted and all of those things uh, through my journey in a, a summer of volunteering in Uganda that turned into my entire life and career. So you know, the thing about Uganda at that time in 2005 was it was suffering from a massive HIV AIDS epidemic. And I went there to help build a school, but ran into a group of teenagers who had been uh, suffering from that epidemic. Their parents had died. And I decided to jump in that tangible action and do something. And I thought, okay, well, I'll just help them get back into school. And that'll last for about a couple of months. <laughs> What is it? What what day is it today? Because I still have Ugandans. They're still texting and calling. Um, but it's been a, quite a journey trying to get a small group of students educated um, in Uganda. So that's what Witness Uganda, the musical, details. The complexity of helping. I love that, actually. Complexity of helping. I'm going to write that down because that is very accurate. So you developed this musical. You were workshopping it. You're going to go to Broadway, and that was a horrible process for you. Yeah, you know the thing. The thing about the show is that 
it was simultaneously the greatest experience of my life making the show and also one of the worst. And I think it was because the way, you know, Witness Uganda seems like a, a title of a show that, you know, people are like, oh, I don't know if I want to go see that. That's about sad Africans and I don't want to see that. And then I think people come into the theater and they realize really quickly that it is not about, it's not Witness Uganda, it's Witness America. And that's the trick of the show is that you're watching this journey through Uganda, but it's really a journey through how Americans are navigating the global community. And so what Witness Uganda brought me was a chance to work with some of the most incredible artists and it got me a seat at the table. We won several awards and it was sort of on track to do a lot of big things. And we did, but also what it, <laughs> what I learned being at the table was you enter a room, the room where it happens, and you discover that nobody else in the room looks like you, has your experience, you are the single soul black person in a room. And it became very tricky to make decisions around Witness Uganda as a company um, of how to get it to the next phase, which was Broadway. So we had done a regional production and then we had gone off Broadway and then it really was a heartbreaking experience to realize that there was a ceiling and that I became aware pretty quickly into that process that I was probably not going to be able to bust that ceiling. And if I wanted to bust that ceiling, I was going to have to compromise quite a bit, which is part of why the show went through a name change to Invisible Thread. That was part of the compromises that, that we were making to try to, in my opinion, whitewash the show to make it palpable. Nobody wants to talk about Africa. Let's trick them and call it mm. invisible thread, you know? And so, so yeah, so it was, it was a lot of compromising and a lot of really tough conversations behind the scenes and a lot of smiling in front of audiences and saving face. And, and I think that what I wanted to do from my experience of making that show was make sure that that never happened to the next black or BIPOC writer of a musical. I wanted to make sure that there, that we finally had the conversation. I love so many things that you just said, but one of them that sort of resonates with me is this idea of having to compromise your integrity and your values to make something happen, right? And that's a very, like a more of a majority experience for people of color, BIPOC people, but I have certainly experienced those things in myself. And I think that like what I always talk about is sort of like in building something, right? Like you can get to the quote unquote destination and compromise yourself, but then at what cost? Versus, you know, it may not happen how you want it or it may not get to where you want it to go, but if you stay in your integrity, you can like sleep at night, right? That's it. Yeah. Couldn't sleep at night is what I'm telling you. I went through many years post the show and during the show when I literally could not sleep at night. I was, I felt like I was losing not just my mind, but I was losing myself. I was losing my spiritual center. And the show is so built on yourself and your spiritual center. It is about that. And so for me to be at the, I was also in the show. So for me to be going out and performing it every night and also not sleeping because I just was having a very tricky situation behind the scenes, that's what I didn't want to live with. That was the hard part. How did you sort of start to heal? <sighs> the healing process is long. 
And I, and I want to be honest about that because I, for many, many years after the show, after Off-Broadway, we closed and then we didn't go to Broadway. And it was very clear that that path was going to be really difficult. And the phone stops ringing. Shows that we had written that were commissioned got dropped from seasons. It was like the whole thing started to crumble. One day you're an award-winning playwright Mm -hmm. and everyone's applauding you. And the next day the phone stopped ringing. And so part of the healing was Matt and I packed up our lives. We moved back to LA to try to go back to television and film. So that was one way the healing started was just to realize if I stay in this place, I'm not going to get the healing. I got to go somewhere else. And then... I did some therapy. Guys, everyone go to therapy. It's so necessary. (laughs) I talk about this all the time. I'm like, why would you not? Just go. Even if you don't feel like you need therapy, go. Someone listens to you. You talk. They listen. It's great. You know, it's it's a really amazing opportunity. My therapist in particular, she's, she's hilarious. But her game, and I figured out the game really quickly, is you talk and then she just repeats what you say to her. And so, and I, the game is that she just wants you to hear yourself. She just wants, so you say, you know, I couldn't sleep last night. I couldn't sleep last night. Wow. You, you couldn't sleep last night. Yeah. I was, you know, I, I was dreaming about, you know, the trees were swaying. Wow. In your dreams, the trees were swaying. You know, like she just repeats it. And so it was actually part of the healing is you got to know how you're talking, what you're saying about yourself, what you're saying about the world. You need a mirror held up to you. So that, and then honest to God, some of the, the healing came from after the show closed, uh, Matt and I got married and we had a baby and like, you just got to get on with your life, right? Like that's also part of the healing is to celebrate the spaces that are still intact. And um, I, I think that people don't always talk about that part of the healing, <laughs> that part of the healing might be like, you know what, get on with it. Like, keep going, you know, like, this, I, I was able to, to compartmentalize the pain of that experience, the professional experience, and also, like, let my life keep going. I didn't want to stop my marriage. I didn't want to stop being a dad. I wanted to, like, to move forward. And then the last thing that I will say is the healing came in a moment. I prayed for many years, a silent prayer. And I shared with my husband that I just pray that God gives me the platform one day that I can speak because I realized that in order to talk about racism inside of your workplace, you got to have a platform. And I wasn't, I thought the platform was going to be, well, one day I'll be famous and that'll be my platform. And that day wasn't coming. And then Corona broke out, Black Lives Matter broke out, and I woke up one morning and I was like, it's go time. What I love about this, and this is a lot of what I've been talking about, is that we all think that like, okay, when I'm this or when I'm that, then I can speak about this pain, right? Because then I'm sort of like safeguarded from, you know, the the fallout, right? And I think that like what I am really enjoying is people being not where they thought they'd be when they start speaking their truth. I think one of the most spiritual things we can do is speak truth. And it takes a lot of courage and there's risk there and there's all these things. But I don't think you need this huge platform to connect with people and truth. You said it. What you just said is is a revelation, right? Like really realizing that 
truth is the platform. And I didn't know that until a few months ago that what I was really silently praying for was that the truth would, that I could stand on that as my platform. Who cares if I'm famous? Who cares if I'm rich? Who cares if I'm poor? Who cares? You got to just like, where is your truth? So. Well, Oprah always yeah. says, her thing is always like, the universe rewards you for being your authentic self, right? And I found that oftentimes, you know, I was like this very authentic person in meetings and interpersonal connection, but in a public sphere, I was like, well, now's not the time to say this. Or like, now I can't, you know, you know. And then it's like, actually, it does reward you because if you're speaking truth and justice, the universe bends towards truth and justice. At least that's what I believe. And so I think what was so cool about when you you did this very, I mean, it was very vulnerable. It was very um, visceral to watch. Like we all, I, I felt uh, obviously a small piece of your pain. I can't fully, you know, uh, live that experience. But I did say, wow, like I had this like inkling of that idea when I saw your show and that process. And then sort of like seeing you share it, I was like, wow, thank God. Yes, let's call out all these institutions for being racist. Thank God. Broadway was one that was like people weren't really talking about. But it's a very, very like in a lot of ways to get a show on Broadway. People don't even understand. I remember I took a producing Broadway producing like workshop when I was like in my early 20s. Like think I thought I wanted to like produce Broadway. And the guy that like produced Hairspray, like I've happened to meet him through someone in my network. And he sat me down. He was like, do not do this. Do not produce Broadway. It is a hobby until it is not a hobby. And I am not one to listen to people when they tell me do not do something. But for some reason, I was like, okay, I'm listening. I'll do TV, right? And it's a very closed door business. It's a very, you need a lot of money to get into that business. So I knew there were all those sort of challenges. And on top of it, it's extremely racist. Um, And so when you did that, a lot of sort of exciting things happened. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I got so many messages and emails and phone calls, certainly through my social media platforms. But one of the things that I think resonated with people, black, white, and everybody in between was that you can reach the pinnacle of success on Broadway and never deal with a black person. And it's not the same for black people, right? We have to deal with white people to get to a Tony or to get to a Broadway contract, we have to deal with a lot of white people and white people don't ever have to deal with us. And that is part of the white supremacy that has taken place to build that organization, Broadway as an organization, Broadway as a business. It is held up by the tenets of white supremacy. And I just wanted to talk about that. Just let's talk about that because there's a lot of things that were happening behind the scenes and in front of the scenes that we weren't talking about. And and so from the video that I posted, I just wanted there to be conversation. I didn't know what the tangible change would be. And I think we're still certainly in the middle of that, but the conversation really took off. And I, I don't even think that the conversation, that the whole thing was about me. I became really aware really early, like day one, when the video started going viral, I was like, oh, this isn't about me at all this is about all of us, right? And so somehow I felt safety inside of that cocoon is that it was resonating with a lot of people. So I knew that I was not alone because when I hit post on my, my video, I felt alone. I literally made the video in my closet 
and any anybody who shares their experience will say their trauma that you feel alone until you start talking and you're like wait especially women women during the me too movement were like wait that happened to you you know so i thought a lot about the me too movement i've been talking a lot about it inside of inside of all of these interviews and, and whatnot because women you know i'm a guy and i feel marginalized because i'm black and gay but when that me too movement broke out i was like oh my god i don't even know women my friends, oh, my, my mother made a post on Facebook and I was like, go back, mom, what? It was just something women were talking about to each other, but they weren't able, they didn't have a platform to talk about it, you know, as a collective, right? They were, individuals were coming out, but it was like that day on Facebook when all the women started sharing their stories. That's when I was like, oh, we really have a problem. Well, I think often it's like the the resilience, right? Being a resilient person, it's like we don't necessarily understand what's happening while we're going through it. It only takes on the other side of coming out of it to like reflect. Like I think about that now after like, you know, building a company, talking about like, you know, trying to build technological tools to make Hollywood a more inclusive place, right? Which is like financially more savvy, it heals the world, like all these things. And like, as I was going through it, I didn't understand how horrible it was. And it's only in the past, like, eight months as I've started to heal and reflect on that journey that I'm in this space where I'm like, oh, my God, why did I allow myself to go through that? And it's like, you know, in service of a dream, in service of a vision, in service of a future that you want to see come to fruition. But there's that that ability to, like, I think as humans not understand really what, like, what, it, what is happening while it's happening. And I think a lot of women, too, are sort of told to, like, you know, this is how it is. It's a, this kind of world. And I'm sure, you know, it's the same thing for BIPOC. People identify as BIPOC. And I think that it's just like, I'm just like, it's just not at this point, you know, we're more, you know, women than men. We are, uh, this next generation is more people of color than white people. By 2050, the whole world, you know, we're more people of color than white people. Also, BIPOC is the global majority right now. It's just like, what are we doing? Why are we living in service of this like old archaic idea that like someone is a construct, like someone created this ridiculous way that of living? Yeah. And I think that one of the things that came into focus for me was that we were ripping the mask off. Like in the theater, we wear masks. We, we were taking the mask off on stage and off stage. We were finally saying, this is what it feels like to be us in the world. The George Floyd moment gave black people a chance to scream, right? We were shut down because of the coronavirus. And then we see George and we were like, okay, we need to scream. And and so black people and BIPOC people started screaming I saw so many letters that went out and companies and it was like, oh my God, America has to look at ourselves. Witness America. We got to look at ourselves. I, I love and, that you say like witness Uganda is witness America because it really is accurate. And I think what I've seen even in like, you know, I like to think that I surround myself with people that are doing their like examining their whiteness and unpacking it. What the sort of current BLM movement did for me was realize like the depth of nuance in that issue of the people around me. And obviously in myself, I'm constantly, you know, looking at that and examining that. But it's a lot of people that quote unquote think they're, you know, liberal or woke really aren't. It's like fine if you have, well, not necessarily, they don't necessarily all have friends of color, but it's like if you're not doing stuff in your work and you're not making actual seismic change professionally, then you're actually not 
liberal. You're actually not of the movement. And I think that's been my biggest thing is like, what are you personally doing in every facet of your life to create a world that we all can exist in? Yeah, that's the goal. And I, and I also will add to that, that it was about examining, yes, whiteness, and then Black people were examining our Blackness, right? We had to go, the movement is not just about white people. It is also for us. We had to go this is us. You know what I mean? Like, I think that that was, and that was a revelation for me. I, I, it's always been about when are white people going to look at themselves and figure it out, right? Like that's what was happening behind the scenes when no white people were around. Black people were talking like that. But what, what this movement has given us a chance to do is also look at ourselves and look at each other, you know, in my, in our, our profession on Broadway, it's like, there's only room for one black show a season. And so what that does is that creates competition between black people and artists of color. There's only room for one black director. So all the black directors don't speak to each other. Don't, you know, really kind of keep a distance. Cause like I'm always up against you for that job. And what it, what this moment in history has done for us is it's been like, okay, so now I don't have to compete with you, my brother, my sister. I can get to know you and hear your story and what have you been through. And when behind the scenes and we've been sharing our stories, we find that, oh my God, we've had the same experiences. Oh my God, I had that same experience with that director or this choreographer or this writer. You know, like it's been it's been a beautiful opportunity for us to get to know ourselves and also to create our own spaces. You know, I think again I, I bring the women's movement the Me Too movement a lot because I realized that women also needed women in that moment. They didn't need men to help give them more platforms to speak. Women were like, yeah, we can do it. Like we, there's other women who are really powerful that can give us the platform. And I think that people of color right now are doing the same thing. It's like, we want to be able to, to talk to each other on our own platforms and to figure out what our, what our next step is and what our power is. Yeah, and I think that you touched on that there is more than enough room for everyone, right? Like that is like, like the white supremacist construct is that you make people feel like there isn't room. It's like a scarcity lens and there's so much room and there's so much space and like this, I hope that this becomes something where we start taking up. I would love to see Witness Uganda in its fullest form and how it's meant to be. I would love to see Witness Uganda in its fullest form and how it's meant to be. And I think that what you should know is that there are many Witness Ugandas, not just out of me, but out of, there's so many writers that you haven't heard from because they can't get through that door. And I'm just excited what happens on the other side of this when we go back to the theater or we go back to the regional theaters even the movie theaters, when we go back, I'm excited for all of the new voices that I hope will emerge because Hollywood had a little bit of a reckoning around race. And from that, we get Justin Simeon and Lena Waithe. And I just started watching Michaela Cole's show. It's, it's like, so good. oh my God. Like, but that's why I go, look, there's so much room. Everyone, when, that, when Dear White People does well, when one of Lena's shows, like everybody gets, the, the, the net gets wider and more inclusive. It's like, there's so much room and, and we want these stories, you know, like there's, it's just unique voices. I talk about 
Michaela Cole too much on this podcast, but uh, I love oh her. Um, but also what I love is like is what we're talking about here, which is like her first show, she compromised pieces of her integrity to get it through the system, right? And then she was like, yeah, I'm done with that. I'm not going to continue to make art if I can't, you know, control my art. And I think it's so important for artists to understand the power they have in their what they create. It's hard to understand it when it isn't celebrated. I think some artists, it's celebrated. Some of my, like, I went to Carnegie Mellon and I graduated in in an insane class of people that have gone on to do huge things. And they did not, some of my white male counterparts did not have the struggles that I had. And I think part of it was just because they were white guys. They just like, they came out of school and they were working and they were, you know, they're famous. And I was like, what's happening? You know, like I'm auditioning to get into the chorus of Lion King for years. I'm just trying to get in the chorus. My white male counterparts are like running around running shit. And I was just like, okay, so that's the, that's what we mean by like the race is not fair. It's, it's, it's really, really tough. So artists of color, and, and I will include women in this too, they have a different journey, right? They're just, they're just trying to go see me, hear me. And generally white guys come out and they've, they're already being seen and heard. There's a, there's a platform for them. There's a roadmap, there's a platform. They're for a long time on Broadway. I would say this in meetings when we were, you know, working on Witness Uganda. I was like, can we get another version of a black man on Broadway? Okay, because we get Brian Stokes Mitchell and Norm Lewis, big, burly, deep voiced, bass black men, or we get Billy Porter. And then there isn't anything in between. There's no Matthew Brodericks. There's no Jonathan Groffs. They're like, think about how many versions of white men get to be, white women get to be. There's a lot of versions of that thing. For black guys, it was like, if I can't puff my chest up and hit, you know, a very low note, there's no work for me. I can't, I'm in the chorus. So I think that that's what, you know, we talk about these other artists that are emerging, like Michaela Cole. I, I loved seeing her. I, I literally watched the pilot like two nights ago and I haven't stopped thinking about it because first of all, she shows up on screen and I can't believe this person looks like this. Like she just looks like a, a revelation on the screen. She's so beautiful. And she's so African, right? Those are African features. And then she's just like so different, you know? She's just so herself. And I am inspired by that performance to like show up on screen as yourself, you know, in your fullest artistic self. So I, I know I've read a couple articles. She's had a long journey to get there, Yeah, you know? And, but masterful storytelling in terms of really showcasing what it is as a woman experiencing sexual assault and piecing that back together. Like what I'm astounded with, not only is she obviously a great voice and super talented, it's the accuracy in showcasing that experience in a way that I don't think we've ever experienced on screen. Um, and But that's the thing, once again, like for one Michaela Cole, how many of them are we missing? That's the thing, right? There's so, And, and also I, I wanna never stop talking about that because I just want to remember, like, we have one of them, right? We got one Michaela. Guess what? We can take another Michaela and another one. <laughs> we'll take all of them, right? And that that's the thing. It's sort of like that space that we were talking about. We want to be aware that the space is, there is room enough for all, right? 
It can't just be like there's one slave movie. Okay, that's enough of the slave. I'm like, do you know how many versions of slavery there had to have been, right? Like, do you, like Jews have had a chance to like make that Holocaust film over, and I'm like, make another one, make another one, make them until we just can't, you know, until we fix it, right? Until we're done with genocide, keep making them. And I feel the same way about black art and, and, and stories about marginalized people. I'm like, keep making them until we fix it. And then we can stop making them. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's not just the obviously it's the unlearning also of like this diseased capitalistic mentality mm. of and I think that's that's part of what people aren't realizing is beyond just obviously the work we have to do with inside ourselves. It's like every structure we've built. And so I, you know, I talk about this a bit, too, is that historically in the history of companies, when a company gets to like Series B, or like, you know, sort of a mid-sized company, there's not a company yet to undo culture. Hmm. So the question, the really the challenge I think for everyone right now is like, okay, great. So we understand we have all these shortcomings and how we've built or how we've created society. How do we rebuild these businesses? How do we rebuild these power centers, whether it's Hollywood or Broadway or any of the other places? Like there's a culture that's, that has to shift. And that's not just going to come from a workshop, right? And like examining right. how to be inclusive or looking at your whiteness or, you know, it's like, how do you bake that into the DNA of any business you create? And I, so, you know, what I hope is like, okay, if you can't dismantle that yourself, there's going to be businesses that are going to be birthed right now and created that are going to bake that into their DNA where there's not even a question about space. Right. Right. And the other option is to burn it down. Which I am not opposed to. Yeah. And, and I think that I got a lot of flack for saying that in the video. I, I said, burn it down. And, and people called me and said, who do you think you are telling people to burn down Broadway? And I, my response was, it was built on a, a rotten system, right? So we're not going to be able to slap some pretty siding onto the house. The house is already rotten, right? It's got to come down and, and we can rebuild it. The beauty, the beauty is, I said burn it down, also, rebuild. and we rebuild it, right? Like, we're going to have to tear this system down. The way that people were like, take down them statues of all these, these races, take them down. We can't have them. These flags can't be flying. Burn it down. And then the beauty is we get to rebuild it. And, and that means inclusivity and, and, and jobs, and we won't be able to hold up the same systems. We'll have to build a new one that is safe and inclusive. And, and that is the work that is going on behind the scenes right now to revitalize the American theater and Hollywood. I've seen journalists, I've seen hospitals receive letters of like, cease and desist, we're, we're done, no more. I think that by definition, what people don't understand, it's like if these systems aren't working for all people, they're not working, right? And so that's the thing with like venture capital. 98% of it goes to white men. 2% goes to women. Of that 2%, 1% goes to black founders, right? So you're looking at that and you're like, okay, that's a system that doesn't work. Fundamentally, if we are distributing wealth to 98% of the people that are getting the wealth is white white men, then like that is a system that is broken, does not work, and needs to be reexamined. And I think that's the part where people are like, it's like, it's like, what are you holding on to? You're holding on to a system where one person wins. Like that's not, a, that's not a world I'm interested in living in. And that might mean things got to burn. And it's okay. I think it's like, I don't want to be afraid to walk through that fire. 
because I do believe that, first of all, we're not the first generation, right, that's been through a revolution. We're not the first. So we know that we can burn something down and rebuild it. And I don't want to be afraid of it because I'm comfortable in my house. I don't want to be afraid of it because, I'm, because my belly is full. I want to be aware and thank God I went to Uganda and thank God I've traveled through the world. It gave me a different perspective on who I am and who other people are. So trying to stay a constant student of the world, I'm a student of the world and it's given me an understanding of how to possibly even talk about rebuilding. So I'm not, I don't want to be afraid of the fire, right? I'm comfortable. I'm aware of my own privilege in the world. And I'm also like, yeah, I'm, I got to walk through the fire too. I got to take a risk too, you know? So I encourage other people in their places of comfort to get uncomfortable and to have the difficult conversations and to listen to this podcast and to re-examine the way we're all moving through the world and, and we can do it better. We can't. We can. I, mean, I think that if we don't get comfortable with discomfort, like, I mean, look at our politics, right? We've lost the ability to have healthy conflict. We've lost the ability to have conversations. And we're just like, you know, it turns into this crazy polarized bullying and trolling. And I think that I'm like, that's, I mean, that's obviously a big fear of mine and a, a worry of mine is that, you know, as humans, none of us are perfect. We're here to connect. And if we can't find those threads, then we've lost sight of the point. I think also... I, I tried to have the conversations in love, truly. I, I've tried to show up to the conversations. I've had a lot of difficult ones with heads of networks and studios. And I try to show up to all those conversations in love because I do think, let me just say this, I do think there are white people that are trying to do the work. There are. And I think we have to honor that too, right? There are people that woke up three months ago and said, oh my God, I'm a white person in America and I've benefited from the system. How can I help? And so I'm like, yeah, let's talk. And I think that we have to, to leave space for the education portion of this program. People are getting educated. People are reading. People are watching new TV. People are watching new movies. Like, this is how we'll do it. The, we'll, we will rebuild it. We'll do some of that rebuilding slowly, and some of it will go fast. I, I think it's the only way forward is to also move in love. I agree. It's not always easy, but... I think that any anything that's hard, if we do it in kindness and love, it ends up being less hard. Correct. So I just before we move to our rapid fire, I want to talk about your beautiful family because yes. it is a joy to watch and witness. So you have a wonderful husband. You have a baby. Uh, as of two days ago, I have two babies. So, oh my goodness, I know nobody knows I'm outing myself on a podcast. <laughs> so, we have a new baby. Um, I, I this entire time I was saying to myself, try to say something remotely intelligent because I didn't sleep last night. So, you're just in like dad brain, it's a whole fog. So, we have a two week old baby, and he is beautiful, and he's a foster kid. and and I have another baby who's a two and a half year old and he's also a foster kid. We've had him since he was five days old. And I think I'm married to a white Jewish man. I think part of the beauty of this is my house is like the United Nations. So I'm black. My husband's white and Jewish. Our two year old is Armenian and Puerto Rican. And this two week old is Cambodian and something else. We don't know yet. So it's like, 
this is the American family. This is the state of the world. And I looked at this little boy and thought to myself, never in my mind did I think I would have an Asian child. It just never crossed my mind. And here he is. is. And I love him. You know, I love that. I think your family's beautiful. You're holding a lot of things at once. Uh, Mm. I think that's something we have to remember is that being a parent is its own labor and unpaid labor and a lot of joy, but it's a lot to hold at once. It's a gift. It's it's a gift because you know what, what I've learned in my two and a half years of parenting is that you can undo the hurt that was done to you. You can either give it to your kids or you can fix it, which is why they say your kids teach you so much. And so it's true. It's such a gift. If you're open to receiving it, you can fix some of your trauma. You can heal. Back to our original question, you can heal. I love that. I recently listened to this podcast with Brene Brown and uh, Dr. Harriet, whatever, she wrote The Dance of Anger, and um, talks about how to apologize. And I realized that, oh, we don't, as humans, really know how to apologize. Like, we're so bad at being human. This, like, very simple thing. Like, we're not really taught how to effectively apologize. We're taught to apologize. And it was, you know, healing for me to sort of, like, understand that and then integrating it, you know, start to heal some stuff with my sister that I've had. And I was like, that's really powerful for me. I'm not a parent yet. But there's never any point where we don't have the opportunity to heal ourselves or heal someone in our lives. So um, I think that's really beautiful. So can you tell us how a call to action of how we can support you, support what's happening on Broadway? Yeah, there is a group called We See You White American Theater um, that has been releasing documents, letters, a list of demands. I signed the initial letter and um, have read the list of demands. And so I, I encourage every listener to go on to Instagram and look for We See You White American Theater um, and just read read the documents and and follow them on Instagram and, and really just, I think the thing we can do is educate ourselves around what what's happening, just stay educated. Do not let this be a, mov- um, a moment, let it be a movement. And so it means we're in for the long haul. Um, and then personally, I'm on Instagram as Griffin's thread. And it's funny, I've been taking my Instagram break since since the two week old showed up. It's priorities. But it's also what I love about Instagram and what I love about the social media platforms is it gives us a chance to connect. I'm actually interested less in, you know, showing my abs, <laughs> my dad, my dad abs, my dad bod. And more about connection. The messages that I get on Instagram are some of my favorite. And so I, I actually have been communicating with people and talking. It's just a, it's a, at social media at its best is us connecting, truly connecting. And so I love getting messages and ideas and thoughts on Instagram. I love it. Well, I'm going to jump into our rapid fire section. So just whatever comes to mind. What would you tell your 20 year old self? You're beautiful. What's the last book you read? I read a book called My Dark Vanessa. It is insane. It is about the grooming of young women. Oof. And it I was I, I don't think I've ever cried reading a book. And I read it and lost my mind. Okay, add it to my list. What are you struggling with right now? Feeling isolated, 
I, I miss humans in person. We're, we're meant to be in community. And so I miss some of that just communion with, with friends and strangers. What's bringing you joy right now? Thank God I have these babies. <laughs> it's just like, thank God they're here. Cause I, there's nothing, my, my two-year-old, he is into excavator trucks and backhoes and bulldozers. And I don't know what an excavator truck is, a backhoe or a bulldozer <laughs> because I'm gay. And I was like, what is all this construction stuff? So I love watching him love the things that I could have cared less about when I was his age. I wanted dolls, Barbies. You know what? <laughs> I did. I was a doll Barbie girl too. <laughs> it just uh, makes sense. <laughs> uh, like fashion, you know? Yeah. Uh, what's the best advice you've ever received? My grandmother died uh, right before I went to Uganda. And the last thing she said to me is, if I could do it over again, I would love more. And it's tattooed to my chest. Wow. I love that. So I'm going to take us through some takeaways before we wrap up. Um, this was, I learned a lot. Uh, a lot of like really for having a dad brain, I'm like, you do not have a dad brain. You have some things that I'm going to uh, credit you and speak about. And definitely this was a very nourishing exchange and conversation. So I really appreciate it. Likewise. I, I love hearing your thoughts and it is, it truly is about talking and listening and listening and listening. So thank you. So some of the takeaways, do not compromise your integrity. You need to sleep. You need to stay vigilant. And I think that's how we can live in an aligned life. And so if any of you is wavering because you think it's going to help you make a shortcut, do not compromise your integrity. Celebrate what you can. I love that. I think that in the process of healing, we have to enjoy the small things. And that's a lot of what's happening for me right now in quarantine is daily small bits of gratitude. And so I think that you you do that with your family and your husband. And I think that's beautiful. Speak your truth. I think this is one truly, truly, truly one of the most spiritual things that we can do is speak our truth to connect with people, to reflect ourselves in people, and to help other people have the courage to speak their truth. Like nothing is going to change if we keep it to ourselves because then we're just saying the system is fine and the system is not fine. There's radical changes that have to happen and we don't have to subscribe to them to find a place in this world. And so I thank you for being brave and doing that. It was very inspiring for me to witness. And the last one is be a constant student. We don't know anything. We don't know anything. And all we can do is do our best to do better. Do better. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. You can continue to listen and subscribe to Do The Work on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. It makes a huge difference if you can review, if you can share and rate this podcast. Thank you so much to Entertainment Speakers Bureau, to Angela, to Nichelle, to David, to Matt, to Smart Post Sound, Lenny for that musical intro, Lindsay for the graphics. I am forever in gratitude. I hope you all find and continue to live in your purpose. Thank you.